You are listening to Redefining Disability, an adaptive sports podcast brought to you by Move United. I am your host, Sean Butcher, and I have the privilege of serving as the editor of Move United Magazine, the nation's leading adaptive sports publication. Each week, tune in to hear how sports have made it possible for our nation's adaptive athletes, training tips from the best coaches and program leaders, and news on the latest technology, equipment, and trends in the industry. On October 23, 2005, Army Sergeant Brian Anderson was nine months into his second deployment in Iraq when his vehicle went over an IED. The Purple Heart recipient and triple amputee has always been an athlete. But after his rehab at Walter Reed, he got away from sports a bit, doing stunt work, acting, writing a book, and other activities. But Wiltshire Rugby spoke to him, and now he's actively playing the game. So let's chat with him. So, Brian, I, I normally start by asking my fellow veterans well, the, the question, why? What was your why, and why did you enlist into the in the military? Huh. Uh, that's a loaded question, actually. There's <laughs> a lot of different reasons. Um, mm-hmm. I was working for American Airlines at the time, and I loved that job, and it could have been a career for me, but I saw it as... I would just be stuck where I was. There would be no traveling, no getting to know the world other than Chicago. Mm. And also at the same time, I was always a little guy and I was a scrappy guy though. And I wanted to always protect the little guys like me. Um, And so that was a way that I could do that. And also be a part of something that was bigger than myself. I wanted to give back. And that was a great way for me to be able to do that. Plus, it would make me tougher. It would give me skills that I never would have had otherwise. And that is basically the reason. And, you know, it led me on a path that led me away from Chicago. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I like the the young and, and scrappy part. <laughs> so. <laughs> And, and, and that's good as good as reason as any, right? I mean, I, I, I joined for a lot of reasons too. And, and one was because I needed to get me, give myself some direction and, 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 uh, and, and discipline and many other things that the military does and the army does provide you. So I think that's, that's a, a nice thing. And, and so how did you go about the, you know, choosing which branch and which MOS uh, and all of those things when you were at that age? So I had a high school sweetheart, um, girlfriend that that's just something that we had talked about. And, and we went to the different branches together, uh, to figure out. And, you know, I think our first choice was kind of air force, but the fact that they couldn't guarantee us a, a job, it was like, you're guaranteed a job within that field, but not the job. Um, and so you just get wherever you're needed. And we didn't like that. Navy was, we didn't like the fact that, oh, we could spend six months on a ship, um, you know, hot bunking and, and doing the three stacks and all that. That didn't seem. The Marine was just way too gung-ho of like not even questioning why you do something. You just do it. Um, like perfect example is Forrest Gump, where there's a hole 
And he's like, Gump, get in that hole. And he just takes a pistol and dives into that hole without question. And it's like, you know, Army is kind of like, can I just throw a grenade in there? Like, do I really need to put my face in there first? Type of thing. Um, so it just seemed like the Army was the, the better fit. And then um, I have an identical twin brother. And we all used to play FBI, bang, bang, shoot him up, taping FBI on the back of our windbreaker jackets. So it was always like we always wanted to be like a cop or some something like that. Um, that when I was joining the military, I was like, hey, I want to be uh, military police officers. And they looked at all of our test scores and was like, yeah, that's something you can do. I was like, cool, that's it. And that was it. <laughs> and, and so you, um, your enlistment day was September 11th, right? That's when you, is that when you? No, like, that's the ship out date. That was the ship out date. So okay. I enlisted in April 26th of 2001, but we were on the delayed entry program. Ah. And the day we were supposed to leave for basic training was on 9-11. And ah. technically it was... 9 12 because it was one o'clock in the morning that day or that night mm-hmm. i mean it still feels like the same day i mean right right uh <laughs> but we just jumped on some buses and drove seven hours to fort leonard wood missouri and and they didn't even know what to do with us so for the next two weeks we just sat at the replacement battalion doing nothing eating cake uh eating good food nobody telling us what to do and then all of a sudden two weeks come by and that's when the shit hit the fan it was like all right we're filling welcome to hell week and everything changed after that oh that's funny that you were you did basic at fort leonardwood that's where i did basic as well oh yeah (laughs) fort lost in the woods yes exactly i was just about to say that (laughs) <laughs> there's nothing there <laughs> exactly exactly and, and uh and and so obviously that was it because of 9-11 that, that just threw them off and they didn't know what to do or? well yeah because they were all locking down the bases like putting the yeah. barriers to where you couldn't bring a vehicle within 250 yards so they had to put all those jersey walls mm. all around every um government building basically um it was just weird and it made it's difficult to navigate, you know, just the base alone. Um, even when you're doing training things and you got to go carry, like, <laughs> I'm sure you were on those kettle cars at Fort Leonard Wood, right? <laughs> that they carried all the, the companies in and stuff or platoons. Uh-huh. And even with those, they couldn't get, you know, where they got three weeks ago. Um so there was a lot of walking and a lot of adjusting. Yeah. And and what about you personally, though? Obviously, 9-11 being so impactful for anyone that was living during it, obviously being young, how did that impact you and maybe the deci- decision that you had just made? Well, I'm not going to lie. Um, I definitely got a little scared or nervous knowing that most likely I'm going to go to war, but there was a bigger part of me that was like, you know what? Like, this is interesting because at this point, now I get to be in a position that I get to do something about it. As a civilian, you just sit there and 
you're wondering. And as in the military, it was like, we get to be the tip of the spear. Granted, we still got to go through basic training and all that. And we didn't even invade Iraq until 2003. Granted, we had stuff going on in Afghanistan at the moment, but we knew pretty much that at some point uh, we were going somewhere. And, you know, we kind of felt proud in that moment. As much as scared as we were, you know, like, what's that saying? Like, there's no chance of being courageous or brave without that aspect of fear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that's a, and it's a very good point because I know there were a number of, a lot of civilians that were, you know, again, wanting, like you said, wanting to do something, but but weren't in a position to do so. And I was post, I'm, I'm a little older than you, so I was post my military service at, at that point even. So, so yeah, even people like me were like, you know, you know, what, what, what can we, what can we do? So, and t- talk a little bit about some of your duty stations and, and uh, obviously your deployments. Um, well, I got screwed a little bit. Um, I was in the same platoon, the same squad for my whole, whole military career. There really? was no PCSing. There was no nothing. Six years, never got to go anywhere or do anything else except for being at Fort Hood. And this is why they call it a black hole because hmm. they don't want to let you go. I came back from Iraq the first time. And now I had been in my unit for three years, which is supposed to PCS every two years. Right. Hmm. And I called the department of the army and it was like, Hey, send me somewhere. I don't care. Send me to Korea. I, nobody wants to go to Korea. I don't care. I will go. And no, that didn't, that didn't happen. And I just ended up going back to Iraq again with my same platoon, my same squad. Um, Mm. Now, most of those guys that were there were stuck just like me too. So I had a really good rapport and um, camaraderie with them. And we knew each other like the back of our hands. So it kind of made going into combat a little bit easier um, just because you know what the other person is doing you know what's in his heart and and you know that he's got your back just like i have his back rather than you know some new newly person that had just transferred into the unit you know uh so you know i guess there's pros and cons to all of that exactly that's what i was going to say i guess there is one pro of of being with the same same group of people (laughs) over a duration of time and was it your second deployment where you got injured yeah Yes. Well, technically third, but I don't even really count my first deployment as a deployment. It was a cakewalk. Um, We got deployed to Fort Leavenworth, Kansas for three months to work Fort Leavenworth maximum security prison Hmm. because it was falling apart. They had built a new prison. And so we worked the prison while they trained on the empty prison and then helped them transfer all the prisoners over. And that took three months. And so that was our first deployment, technically. And we had three days on, four days off, living in officers' quarters, had maids, uh, had a sand volleyball course right outside the hotel and a golf course next to us. And yeah, that was like the biggest cakewalk you'd ever done in your life. I was going to say, that sounds more of a like a vacation versus a deployment. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And and uh, for those that may not be familiar with your story, how, walk walk me through a little bit about that that injury and and uh, and when it happened and where, and then a little bit about your recovery as well. Okay, so like brushing through the first year really quick, um, we invaded Iraq March two thousand three. Mm-hmm. Um, went through the whole year 
having a few conflicts, but not much. They were mostly scared of us at that time. Um, and then right at the end of that year, they started coming out with IEDs, which at that point in time was just like a Pepsi can with a wire sticking out of it. And you drive by and it would just go pop, kind of like an M80. Mm-hmm. And it was like, what was that? And they're like, oh, these are these IED things. Yeah, whatever. All right. Didn't even pop a tire. Keep going. And that was our first um, experience with IEDs. Well, then we go home. Eight months later, we're going back to Iraq again. And it was like, oh, and this time we were strictly in Baghdad. The first year we were all over the place. Second year was mostly just being in Baghdad. And when we got told we were going back to Iraq, we turned on TV and the media was making it seem like it was extremely dangerous. These IEDs were intense and insane. And we kind of looked at it as like, we're thinking back to these Pepsi cans. Like, Mm -hmm. what are you talking about? Like, it's nothing. We have armor, you know, like, Mm -hmm. and then we just kind of assumed the media was just saying that to get more ratings and to make it seem like it was that when it really wasn't. And then we get there, we meet up with the unit that's going to take us to the the base for the next year. And we actually got hit with an IED that very first day. It didn't hit any of the trucks. Nobody was hurt, nothing like that. But all of a sudden, this like massive explosion goes off. And like this concussion just like riddles through your body. And you're just like, holy crap, what was that? And the guys that have been there look back and goes, that's an IED. And you're just like, oh, that changes everything. Mm -hmm. And we get back to the base and we're kind of like, well, you know, we're not going to be lucky every day. We're bound to come into our issues every now and again. Maybe this is just one of those days. It's not going to happen every day. Um, and so we left it at that. And for the first three months, that second year, we were police academy instructors. So we didn't really leave the base. Like our base was attached to the police academy that we were training Iraqi police officers with. Right. So for the first three months, that's what we did. Then after three months, they said, all right, now we want you to go out and make sure that all these Iraqi police officers are doing what you taught them. Basically, making sure they're policing their own country. And it, it basically entailed us holding their hands, you know, going on raids, patrolling, making sure that they had weapons and vehicles, um, food for the prisoners, humane jail cells, things like that. Everything that runs in, goes into running a police station in your country. That's what we started doing. But that started putting us outside the wire 12 to 16 hours a day. And we had six Iraqi police stations within like a six or seven mile radius. And within that radius, every single day, there were 60 IEDs going off every day. So we knew that it was dangerous. And it became when we get hit instead of if we get hit, we knew it was going to happen eventually. And it was kind of like, well, is it going to be one of those miraculous stories where I watch shrapnel go right by my head or is the armor going to hold up or is it going to kill us? You don't necessarily think about coming back halfway. At least I never did. I either thought I was going to make it or I wasn't. I did not think about coming back as like a triple amputee. Uh, just never even crossed my mind. Um, and then, you know, October 23rd, 2005, 
was just driving and, and we didn't even make it to the first police station. Um, I had both of my hands on the bottom of the steering wheel, take my hand off the steering wheel, put a cigarette in my mouth and went to go light it. And that's the only reason I still have my right hand is because I was just lighting a cigarette. The whole bottom half of the steering wheel was gone. So if my hand was still there, I'd be a quadruple amputee right now. Um, yeah. Um, everything happened instantly. My legs were laying in the floorboard. My hand was in the passenger seat, spun me sideways. Um, yeah, I probably would have started freaking out pretty quickly, but I told myself to get out. Couldn't realize why I couldn't get out. But then three seconds after that, my buddies were there both busting the bolts off the door. Um, and the door flew open, got it. They pull me out, get a good fresh breath of air. And I get brought to the sidewalk. And at this point, I still don't know what's wrong with me. At this point, all I know is that I needed to be pulled out of the vehicle. And I didn't know why. Mm -hmm. um, but while they're carrying me to the sidewalk, I'm looking around trying to figure out, are we still being attacked? Uh, what's going on? Do I need to be doing something? But all I could see was my friends running back and forth from me to the truck like they'd all just seen a ghost. Nobody was shooting. Nobody was doing anything. So I was like, okay, well, we're not being attacked. Why did I need to be pulled out of the vehicle? Like, what's going on? And at the time, I had blood on my face. And the flies in Iraq were so nasty and impersonal. They just ruin your day. But they were buzzing around my face. And the first thing that I did was I went to wipe my face like this. And that's when I noticed that my index fingertip is missing. And so I'm like, oh, okay. And I look up at my friends and I look back at this and I'm like, yeah, okay. They're not freaking out because I lost my fingertip. Um, and then I turned my hand over. And where this tattoo on my hand is, that whole chunk was missing. And I could see into my hand, like the shattered bone and torn ligaments. And I was just kind of like, oh, that's gross. And I look at my friends and I look back at this and I'm still just like, yeah, no, not freaking out about that. And as I was looking at this, um, a fly landed in my left eye. And because I was looking at my right hand, I went to go wipe it away with my left hand. And I just whiffed. And I look over and I'm like, oh, and my sleeve was just hanging there, blood dripping down. My hand was gone. And that's when I was initially kind of like, oh, shit. And I look up at my friends again and I look at my hand and I'm like, yeah, okay, this sucks, but I still don't think it would cause them to act the way that they're acting. And that's what made me look down. And as I started to look down, they tried to force my head back down to the ground, but I saw what had happened. And in my head, I let out this whole string of swear words like, yeah, no, that did not just happen. But I really knew that it did. And then I got this really weird feeling like, oh, crap, my mom's going to kill me. <laughs> like, if this doesn't, she will. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then uh, I look up at my friends and they're all freaking out. Um, and I hadn't said anything up to this point yet. And he came up to me after the fact and he's like, do you remember what you said? And I'm like, what do you think I said? And he tells me and I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and he goes, 
well, no, thank you. That made me realize you were still there and it wasn't just a lifeless body. And it made me get back to a point to where I needed to be. And, and that dude ended up, you know, saving my life. Um, and we laid there and it broke the tension, right? I mean, yeah, it it recentered the focus and broke the tension for sure. Absolutely. And then we laid there for like 12 minutes waiting for the helicopter to land. Um, it was hard to breathe. It hurt to breathe. What had happened was the concussion of the blast had collapsed my right lung. And I was a combat lifesaver. So I knew you can't help but self-assess yourself. And I knew that this was not a good position to be in. But at the same time, I I never felt like I was going to die. And I feel that if you were in that situation, you were, that Mm. you had some sort of inkling or feeling or notion of it. And I just didn't. At the same time, I didn't want to take any chances. So I just told myself you know what? Stay awake. Talk to these guys and go through those motions of breathing. Make those muscles, even though it hurts, just. And so that's what I did. And helicopter landed. They all, you know, used their bodies to cover my wounds to protect it from any more debris getting in there. Mm-hmm. Um, I get into the helicopter and I looked at the medic and I was like, I need air. I need air. And he's like, all right, let me lock you in. Heard the locks click in. And uh, they put that can- cantula or whatever, the nose piece, not the mask, but just the nose tube. And that's where I felt comfortable enough to relax. And that's where I passed out. Mm. And it was three, it literally felt like three seconds from the time I closed my eyes to the time I opened my eyes. And uh, I had expected, I knew it was only a two minute flight away from where we were to the Baghdad ER and the green zone. And so I had expected to wake up to some doctor poking a prod at me like, Hey, do you feel this? Does this hurt? I don't know, something or another. And I didn't, when I opened my eyes, my mom's face was there and I was like, mom, whoa, wait, what are you doing here? And she goes, no, no, it's okay. You had an accident. I was like, I know I had an accident. Like, what the heck are you doing here? And I'm thinking like, what idiot brought my mom to Iraq? Like, that's just not cool. And then she does the mom thing and gives me the look, like, you're going to let me finish? And I'm, oh, yeah, okay. And she goes, it's seven days later, and you're at Walter Reed in Washington, D.C. And I was like, wait, what? I'm already back in the United States? And she's like, yeah. I was just like, wow. That's incredible. Yeah, and, and I wanted to ask you, obviously, there's a lot that goes on during recovery, but how did sports and recreation fit into your recovery? Well, I was always an athlete. And so while I was at rehab, I had the ability to use sports. And it was like, you know, basketball, um, tennis, just hitting the ball against the wall. That helped with my mind. Mm -hmm. But then after I got out, I got so busy, you know, being an actor and a stuntman and an author and a public speaker and a spokesperson that I didn't have time for sport. And that was something that I felt I was missing in my life. And I needed that. I wanted that. COVID, in my opinion, became a blessing because that gave me a fresh start of being able to control my schedule again. Mm -hmm. Because for the last 15 years up to that, I had been booked six months to a year in advance. I couldn't even commit one day a week to anything. Um, because my schedule was so random and so just 
whatever, that mm-hmm. I couldn't do that. So when COVID hit, I was able to recreate, you know, my schedule and my control over it. And that's initially when I started playing wheelchair rugby. Now I work for a wheelchair company that we have sponsored, you know, the national wheelchair games and things like that. And so I'd go down for these events and I'd get to participate for that day. But other than that, that's as far as it went. And I met a couple of the guys that are actually on my team right now that are the first guys that ever showed me wheelchair rugby, which I think is fantastic. (laughs) And so you're still obviously actively playing with the Chicago team? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. We are Oscar Mike Militia. Yeah. And why, why do you think it is that you really got into that particular sport? Uh, because in my opinion, it's just the most, um, excuse my language again, but badass sport that you could play mm-hmm. as far as being somebody in a wheelchair, there's contact, you're hitting each other, you're flipping each other. It's fast paced, it's mm-hmm. strategic, and it's a team sport where there's a bunch of camaraderie and it just spoke to me. It really did. Hmm. Yeah, and that's what, what the, we'll, I've, I've inter- interviewed a couple of the national team members, and they, they I mean, it's the camaraderie and the collisions. I mean, it's the double Cs, right? <laughs> yeah, and our coach right now is the USA coach. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. And I got, you know, two guys on my team that are USA team members. Mm-hmm. So at any given time, like, there's one league. That's it. So all these Olympians are all spread out throughout the team. So at any given moment, I am playing against Olympians. It's insane. Yeah. You're playing against the top of the top of the country and the top of the world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's fantastic. It's such a great sport. And I know, Brian, you mentioned some of the things that you've you've done over your career. And, and like you said, you've you've written a book, you've you do a lot, you do a lot of public speaking, you've done some acting. Um, what are some of the things that you're concentrating on now? I'm in a transition. I just built a house outside of Nashville, Tennessee on 23 acres. So I've been focused on doing that a lot. Um, so it's that rugby and uh, the wheelchair company that I worked for, uh, Quantum Rehab, mm-hmm. I just, you know, I'm just trying to do my thing, but also at the same time, enjoy my life. Um, I also am the spokesperson for USA Cares and the Garrison East Foundation. And so those are, you know, things and events that I tend to go to. Um, and also trying to help the veteran the best way that I know how. That's yeah. That's it. And and so you're still doing some public speaking, but you've you've kind of pulled pulled a lot of that back in, or yes, yeah. And I got rid of my agent when I left LA, uh, so I haven't been acting or doing any of the stunt stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but this was me navigating. You know, this is the start of my third year for rugby. Uh, it was realizing what kind of commitment rugby is, and how can I. Um, uh, implement both of them into my life. And, you know, it's not the easiest, but I'm getting to a point now. Nashville is a very 
big talent mecca. And so I'm going to get an agent in um, Tennessee when I get back and, and try to figure that all out. So is that house finished yet or are you? Uh, just yeah, it's about- done. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm there. You're, you're, you're living full time now in the Nashville area. Yeah. And I'm actually in Chicago. I have my condo and my house. Okay. And at so the moment I'm in Chicago. <laughs> so you're going back and forth. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. And so do you, do you envision uh, staying, obviously having that, having some connections to Chicago and, and playing in Chicago, or are you looking at, uh, are there opportunities to play at the level that you want to play? Uh, I'm sticking certainly. with Chicago, my team, Oscar yeah. Mike. It's the only yeah. off-veteran team in the league. Right. Yeah. And so I feel like that's very special to be a part of. Yeah. Um, so that's what we're doing. So do you think you've, you've reached, you know, you mentioned you're in a transition, but do you think you feel like you've um, kind of gotten to a point where you're, where you're balanced? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's working out. Good. And, and then the last, last question I officially have for you is just in terms of how has sport, uh, cause you said you were an athlete, you know, you know, growing up and throughout your life too, how has sport uh, been able to contribute to who, who you are as a person? Well, that's a huge thing, actually. Um, you know, sports teaches you how to deal with heartache, loss, um, putting your body through something to make yourself better, you know, going through like a struggle, you know, of just like, um, making yourself making yourself um, better mm-hmm. uh, through pushing yourself beyond your limits. And I think when you can translate through that through life, uh, it works in all aspects of life. And I'm very grateful for that. And um, if people want to connect with you, um, are there either a, a website or particular social media platforms that you connect with people yeah, I do on Facebook and stuff like that, but I can't stand social media. Like I could probably have so much more of a following. I just don't care. Uh, <laughs> but oh, what was the first part of that question? In terms of like website or other ways to. Oh yeah. I have a website. Um, it's andersonactive.com. And that shows you things that I've done, helps you get in contact with me if you want to have me come and speak in an event or whatnot. Um, it shows, you know, the media things I've done. It shows my acting reel. It's just a powerful tool for everything that I do. 